Welcome back to From the Front Row, brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. I'm Ogi Chibo. And I'm Ian Bukta. If this is your first time with us, welcome. We're a student-run podcast that talks about major issues in public health and how they are relevant to anyone, both in and out of the field of public health. Today, we have a very special episode which deviates from our usual. Today's episode will be a conversation held between Oge and a few of our colleagues from the College of Public Health. Yes, um, as we all know, the world has gotten a tad bit more crazy from the usual. And we also decided to switch it up a bit this week. I sat down with a couple of black women from the college and we just talked about everything. By everything, I mean how identity plays a role in our lives, what we have normalized or what we've been conditioned to normalize and the unwanted but persistent guest, racism. As future experts, we found a way to revolve this around public health. Everything revolves around public health. And if you've been journeying us with us for a while, or maybe this is your first time you know, hearing our podcast, even if you listen to no more podcasts of, you know, of ours ever again, you should just listen to this whole episode. I got a chance to edit it and listen to it, and it just blew me away. And um, this conversation is really one that everyone should just stay and listen to the end. So we have a long one for you today. So let's get right into it. All right. So hi, everyone. Welcome back to From the Front Row. Um, so today we're going to hear from my colleagues at the College of Public Health. Um, intellectuals, future professionals, black women, we're all here gathered today over Zoom <laughs> to bring you guys a special episode. So if you guys could go around and introduce yourself. Hello everyone, uh, my name is Bikela Ikoba and I originally grew up in the Quad City area um, here in Iowa and I am an incoming second year Master of Public Health student in the Community and Behavioral Health Department here at the University of Iowa. Glad to be here. Hi everyone, my name is Chelsea Hicks and I'm kind of from everywhere. I'm a military kid, but I, I spent a good bit of my life in Madison, Mississippi, and I am a incoming fourth year doctoral candidate in the Department of Occupational and Environmental Health here at the University of Iowa. Hi, uh, my name is Felicia Pieper and I'm an incoming second year uh, Master's of Public Health student in the Community Behavioral Health Department. Um, I'm from Iowa City and also spent a good amount of time in Cedar Rapids, so this eastern Iowa area is what I call home. Hi everyone, my name is Tuluwani. I am from Nigeria and I am enrolled in the uh, doctoral program in Community and Behavioral Health at the College of Public Health. Thanks ladies and hi, my name is Oge Chibo. <laughs> I'm also from Nigeria. I'm your host and I am in epidemiology, so I guess I'm second year plus, I guess. <laughs> All right, so how this episode is going to go is I'm just, I have a couple of questions that I'm going to ask and anyone can feel free to answer it in whatever order you'd like. Okay. So my first question is, if you could use a word or sentence to define what it's like being a black woman in America or in the world, what would you say and why? I can start, mm -hmm. um, at least for me. So I feel like there are many things that I could say. Um, and of course, this is just my personal experience, of course. But I think the word that came to mind after thinking about it is proving. I think for me personally, I do feel like I constantly feel like I'm trying to like prove something um if not to others then to myself and if not to myself then to others and i think they're really intertwined with specifically that you know proving that i belong to be in the room like proving that i do have things to contribute to the situation proving that i can actually help um you know help us get to like these solutions that people I feel like oftentimes look to us to say, okay, we want to be more diverse. How do we do this? Yeah. You know? Um, and you're like, feel like you have to prove that sense of like, oh man, I have to have an answer to this question that um, I didn't create, but here I am. Or to an issue that I didn't create, but I'm being forced to have to solve. Proving that, yeah, my worth is more than being a diverse face on a brochure somewhere. So, but even in that too, though, I do think that there's hope in the proving and specifically with being asked questions like what can we do to make our programs our institutions or whatever more diverse i think that there's hope in that proving yourself i think that there's hope in this idea that 
we're being asked questions now that previous generations and generations weren't asked. Um, so I think that there's hope and encouragement even in the proving, even though it can feel a little tiring um, and hard sometimes. Um, at least for me, I think that's something that comes to mind. Uh, sure, I can go next. Um, so when I thought of that, and I know um, I kind of thought of something that I wrote uh, earlier this May. Um, so I'm just going to read that. It's a little very short thing. I promise. <laughs> it's like, I will not be verbose, not today. Um, <laughs> but thinking of that question and like, I, I think of this, this phrase. And so our plight is one of silenced voices, muted sounds, and our muffled voices so common that people no longer hear them. We've become the background sound, and the irony is that it's called white noise. And like, I really feel like that like really kind of describes sometimes my existence or sometimes how I feel and like in my work or what I'm trying to do um, in like the bigger picture of the world, right? It's like, you know, you can you can tell people that they are disparities. You can tell and you're expressing all your concerns about what is existing yet. It's, it's said so often that almost it's become background noise, that people are hearing it so much that it doesn't, doesn't even like register because it's the sound they're used to having in the background, right? And like, until it reaches a point that it's so loud that it becomes annoying, mm -hmm. how you choose to define annoying, but when it becomes annoying, that is when like people start to hear and listen and start to react to yeah. that and feel like that's our, my constant like fight and struggle with whatever I'm doing and whatever like area that I'm in. It's just like, the repetition of myself over and over, and even what Michaela said, the, the proving of myself over and over. Um. Okay. I think I might go now. Um, so everything everyone said, I second. And honestly, I think being a black woman just in the world, taking up space in this world is very challenging. No matter where I find myself, whether back home in Nigeria, or even in the United States, or in Europe, or in Asia, you know, I have experienced just that burden of having to prove myself, prove my worth, my voice being heard, or just showing that I'm an intelligent being and I know what I'm doing, you know, so it's, and then even navigating life mm -hmm. and making sure that I'm not offending anyone with my presence. It's a burden I've had to carry and I still have to carry. So I'm always thinking about my interactions, my relationship with people, the way I talk to people, mm -hmm. how I come off to people. Am I being too strong? Am I, am I being, you know, so it's, it's, I feel like it's a burden. It's challenging for me, but it's a challenge is an opportunity to, you know, stand up to the ask. And that's what I, I find myself doing every day, standing up to the ask of the challenge. Yeah. Um, so I think just to echo what I think we all kind of shared, my original word, first thing that came to my mind when this question was posed was tired, which is not super uplifting or <laughs> prophetic in any sense. Um, and I think we kind of described that well, those like mental hoops um, that we deal with on a daily basis. Um, but I think too, after hearing what we all had to say, just to kind of wrap it up too, I think we're all really incredibly proud of our identities um, and incredibly have so much passion and joy in who we are and what we bring to the table as well. So while, you know, being who we are can be quite exhausting and we have to deal with a lot at the same time comes with immense pride and joy at the same time. So I, I also like took the liberty of like answering the question because even when I wrote it up, I was just like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> but so the word I actually put, first of all, is like adaptable. But then I switched it to intrepid, which means fearless and adventurous. So like me, I personally, I, I am, a, I, am <laughs> I don't say I'm a scared person. I get scared a lot. So everything terrifies me. But then, and that's also um, stems from how I was raised. And I think like I was raised with black women, like women. And how I was raised was kind of like a sheltered, like, you know, like, oh, let's just, you know, keep her in this box, preserve her. And I guess it's that whole idea that, oh, the world isn't really as kind to you as we will be. So it's kind of like, let's just give you all this love. And I've come out and I was like, because I came to the U.S. in 2015 and I never really had to take on the identity of a black woman until I came here. So it was a major culture shock. I came here and then people were like, oh yeah, you're a black woman, you're black. And I'm like, huh? No, I'm not. It wasn't saying I'm African. It was even a big deal, a big deal for me because I never had to prove or say that back at home. So it was like, 
<sighs> okay. And then with every single year that I've stayed in the US since 2015, I've seen myself like really attaching myself to that identity. Not only because like, I mean, everyone has labeled me that I inhabit this body. I've taken on the struggles that come with such a label. And it's like, it's been really interesting, like up until the point that I got so uncomfortable, uncomfortable in my own body. So it's kind of like, I just felt like it was my body kind of telling me like, nah, all those things you've learned, all those shelters you were provided, it has to come up. You have to take your space. You have to show up. You have to show people. Also that whole proving yourself thing. You have to show people I am here. I am seen. I am capable and I will do it. Someone's like, it's a lot, but like we're doing it. <laughs> Praise Jesus. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> so yeah. All right. I, love oh, I really resonate with what you just said about like, about with your identity. I grew up a good bit of my life abroad and it was always, my identity was always, oh, you're an American. Mm -hmm. Like, or you're a military kid. Like that was my identity first. And then moving to the U.S., it was like, oh, you're a black woman. And I'm like, oh, oh, okay. I mean, it's not <laughs> I wasn't, but like it took on a whole entire different, like, I guess like backpack, right? There was a, there was more, there was more weight to that title than I was used to. And so then like, then, then learning how to manage and and carry that weight and that burden and the beauty of it as well has just been yeah it's been a growing experience all right <laughs> so the next question that I have here is so we are all in the field of public health and we know social determinants of health plays a role in the disparities that exist in our communities so for our listeners I like to define social determinants of health um, it's the condition in which one lives work plays that has an impact on one's health so how do you think social determinants of health has played a role in your life? I think for me, the first thing that comes to mind, especially being a grad student, um, is employment and just wealth and income, but more importantly, like generational wealth and how that is really on display as a grad student and kind of how I interact with my peers and seeing people make decisions um, for career and things like that um, and seeing what people opportunities people have um, that have to do with resources from their family that I don't see with necessarily my community. And I think about it a lot as well, too. Like when we think about these, all the things that are happening in the world, it's just one piece that we don't highlight enough. I think especially in academia, we can talk about first-gen students and highlighting first-gen students, but at the same time, there's just this level of resources that like a university cannot provide. Mm -hmm. And that was what I first thought of when you posed this question, okay. Mm -hmm. All right, so if anyone still has anything to talk about social determinants of health, um, a second like subset of that question is even looking into like medical bias. So like, depending on, I know we all have our different subspecialties and things we're really looking into. Like, so if like, what are your views on medical bias? Like with everything going on, I see a lot of people paying close and close attention to like the statistics and stuff. It's like, not only how are these statistics being calculated, but also how they are being interpreted. Like I know in, one of the things I love about public health is that we do highlight like the fact that racism is a social determinant of health. And I mean, I was just reading something that was talking about the history of oppression. And I was just reading like nothing public health related. And I was just reading and I just saw, oh, the socio-ecological model was just in there, like in the middle. They just, oh, uh, let's talk about this. And I just feel like it's really interesting that, or like, you know, the whole rhetoric that, oh, racism is a touchy issue, which I, I, in my own opinion, I believe that it's a, touch, it's a touchy issue because we know it's still going on. And everyone has tried to normalize or walk around it and act like, oh, yeah, yeah, we know that's a thing, but let's just act like nothing is happening, you know, let's just move forward. And I really like the fact that public health like, calls into attention, like, oh, this is happening. But then after calling into the attention, I mean, we're going to deal with this later in this conversation, but like, how then do we intent on actually fixing these things because like even with last week it's been like really talking about these things like the whole black lives matter or racism 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 it's like yes this is a thing this has been going on so you know so in your own i've just kind of gone off real this is what happens when i start to talk <laughs> 
but yeah so in your own subspecialties like is there why your views on these disparities and how like you know with the whole social determinant of health racism is a social determinant of health and it affects us everywhere daily in things that we do in how we interpret like the whole level of violence or who deserves what or how do we allocate these resources and funds and equity and stuff okay i'm gonna go um so yes racism is a social determinant of health i want to talk about place being a social determinant of health as well mm -hmm. place as in location where you live so for me personally you know coming to this country you know when i was young was a privilege for me just because I was looking for better opportunities um, but you know so to com coming out of where I was born and coming here is something that helped me move further and forward in life right but now coming here now representing the black identity as a black person I figured that it was more than just you know just getting those opportunities I had to do other things to be able to get those opportunities and I also had to carry the burden of my um, peers or people from my race that had have to deal with you know the effect of racism mm -hmm. on them and learning about how the zip code determines your life expectancy and you see like the interesting uh, differences in um, life expectancy and health outcomes just based on zip code alone even within the same city you know very interesting to see those and also very interesting to see how um, just being, just, you know, like you said, medical bias, um, you know, being a black woman, your voice may not be heard just because, you, you know, people have a preconceived implicit bias about, you know, the pain levels you might be going through and your level of education about your level of pain. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so coming here, I realized I was more than just moving from a country where I felt I didn't have access to the resources I needed to come to a country where there are so many resources, but now can I access them because of my skin color? So yeah, so I'm just looking at the different, the interrelationship between um, place and now, you know, your identity. It's all, yeah. So, mm -hmm. I mean, just coming from a personal perspective, it all, it all adds, it all, it's all interrelated for me. Like the social determinants of health are interrelated for me. Yeah, I that's I was thinking of the thing about place and environment. Um, since I study occupational environmental health, I was thinking about it from the perspective of you know one yes access to resources, but also proximity to toxic dump sites, proximity to factories, or proximity and, and talking about you know air pollution and water pollution and pollution of the ground and like and and, and exposure to different toxins and how you can actually look at it like on maps and see the the racial differences of certain places being chosen to be, be put in locations that are predominantly people of color right and so like thinking about how those decisions are made and thinking about um thinking about how place like tola was saying how place plays a role in that um or even going from the point of of occupation right so what how do how do people choose the occupation that they want to go into and how and and what occupations might have more maybe predominantly people of color or predominantly caucasian people and so it's like what what is what are those differences right does that change exposure to injuries exposure to violence exposure to and all and all of those things you can like you can look at the data and you and you see differences you see that and it's i mean it can it could be from a variety of reasons but you can't ignore it because it's it's right there in the numbers yeah, so like for me, like so this semester, past semester, I TA'd for a fundamental public health class with Felicia. And honestly, I think I learned so much from taking that class than I ever have in just taking any class ever. <laughs> because I saw myself like trying to explain to like people who obviously is your first time in public health, and even me too, I barely even know these concepts, but trying to explain how oh, you see all these things that we see, it's way deeper than we think, honestly. And even depending on how you think, depends on what, um, I, don't, I don't know if I should say justification, how you're going to justify what you are seeing based off of how you interpret. So on that individual level. And then that is going to also 
influence how other people you talk to or people in your community are also going to see that thing <laughs> that I don't know so I was kind of like telling them how like in the U.S. in the United States is the land of the free and I quote unquote land of the free because <laughs> I was like um if you start to think about these things your community wherever you live they make it look like you're free they are stuff around they put you in a box where they give you options but then you don't know that you could have other options, but they've just given you the options that they think is right for you to choose. And then you start to think like, oh, I'm free. I have the choice to, but it's like, you only have the choice to choose from these things that you see. And if you don't think about it like that, you're now like, oh, you know, you're just in that mindset. Like, and I think that's something because if you think about it from when we're children to now that we're adults, we as kids, we had that spirit. We had that imagination. You could think about anything and it becomes true. It's your real life. But then the longer you live in this world, the world breaks you. The world makes sure that all those imagination dies down till you start to think in a normal way, quote unquote, a normal way. And it's like, I feel like I have to think in this way in order for me to survive. I have to ignore some certain things just so I can be happy or feel happy and feel like, you know what? This is all I have. This is all I can make do with. And I'm just going to work in that way. So that way, even if, I'm not as fulfilled as I could potentially be, it's fine. I'm fulfilled where I'm at right now and that's okay. You know, just kind of like normalizing some things that when you actually sit down, if you're never out of your shell, which I thank God every day, I actually stepped out of Nigeria because I was talking to a friend. I was like, if I'm still in Nigeria, I feel like I'll be a totally different person. I wouldn't have the perspective I have now, which most times actually a lot of people disagree (laughs) or they're like, no, this is Nigeria. This is not the U.S. And I'm like, let's stop. This is wrong. <laughs> Don't think this way. Like, there's 1,001 possibilities. And even me, I'm learning every single day. I'm trying to unlearn and relearn. I mean, which is really hard, especially since they've already put this one perspective in your head and told you. Okay, so when you think about the social determinants of health, you know, place is so important to that. There's enough studies showing that your zip code can you know determine your health outcomes right and you see very stark or very large differences in health outcomes from zip code to zip code even within the same city but something interesting that i think about is myself as you know an african immigrant to the united states i think about the social determinants of health back home where I'm from and the social determinants of health here in the United States. Studies coming out of Harvard by Professor Dr. David Williams, who is a public health professor, as well as a sociology and African-American history professor at the University of Harvard. Uh, He uh, made it known that following every police brutality, it takes black men up to three months to recover from the mental trauma of that incident. And not only black men, it also takes the black community about the same time. So it's not only an individual determinant now, you're talking about the community level of the socio-ecological model. And um, when you think about this, you think about how frequent these um, incidents are, how frequently we see different cases of whether an unarmed man, black man killed by the cops or killed by a regular citizen or mistaken for a criminal, not even only a man, unarmed black females as well, or transgender females. You think about how much time we actually have to recover from those incidents, probably not enough if we need up to three months because before three months is up, there is another incident occurring. So we are carrying the burdens from this incident, the mental burdens from this incident. And we know about the, uh, you know, genetical uh, effects of trauma. We know how trauma can be encoded in your DNA and can be passed down to your future generations. And so when you think about all of these combined, you can think about African-American, um, African-Americans' health being at risk based on the skin color, uh, based on their race. Um, yeah, so definitely that's something, something to think about when you think about, you know, the social determinants of health. 
yeah, I just so respect of the wealth of insight that's brought into this room and into the space, even if virtually. And so I think for me, even just seeing and hearing this question originally, I think when it comes to the social determinants of health um, being these conditions, as you mentioned, Oge, in which we live and learn and work. Um, and, you know, even right now, uh, as we breathe, <laughs> um, I think as we talk about these topics like race and racism amidst this national conversation that we're having right now, and specifically in the context of public health, when we talk about topics like medical bias and COVID-19 and these health disparities that we're seeing, as we talk about so many of these things, I think race intersects with so many of these things because race intersects with so many of these things. And as a result, race is going to show up in all of these things so clearly. And so I think the social determinants of health do intersect in a lot of these ways already mentioned by these women and, and even in a lot of the identities that I hold and specifically as a black woman because race has so heavily, heavily impacted the way that we do perceive and function in our world. Thank you, Bikella. And that kind of highlights what I wanted to say too, thinking about intersections, um, just how compounding issues of race are and even Chelsea to bring up occupation and, and environment, the name of the department, um, <laughs> to bring up both of those and then to see a statistic where black and brown people are dying at disproportional rates of COVID. That's really hard for the average person to unpack. I mean, I mean, I don't know if it's even possible, right? Like our whole <laughs> education is training us to be able to take all these different um, think big picture, think about all these different aspects of our life, social determinants of health, and then we pop out one statistic that tells us a lot about our society, but I think unfortunately that gets interpreted maybe not incorrectly, but it's only part of the truth over and over. Um, even just specifically thinking about COVID, um, medical bias has been brought up, um, all these different things, comorbidities, um, but then when we really try to narrow in on one problem, we lose the whole picture. So medical bias is incredibly important and something we absolutely need to address. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if we're not keeping in mind that, you know, black folks are living in communities where the air is toxic and we're not keeping in mind the, um, you know, maybe a issue with the police has come up and the whole community's health is suffering, you know, we're not solving the problem. And I think to, um, I don't know how much we'll get into some of the more recent happenings and thinking about um, policing and what that means for our, for our whole society, um, specifically black communities, but at the same time, you know, just identifying what's the symptom, what's the cause, how do we begin to tackle some of these things? How do we begin to talk to some of these things? Like, I think we've gotten to a point, at least I'll speak for myself, I've gotten to a point where in academic settings, I feel comfortable enough to discuss some of these things, but then to be confronted with a just, just such an ignorant statement sometimes for, you know, as a grad student to begin to even start to unpack to explain why something is wrong is like, so I think, you know, that's something, um, we could be thinking about more in academics too. How do we translate some of this? Um, I mean, Bikella and I just took a whole semester course on health equity, health disparities, and social justice. And we started to get some of the tools that we need to be able to fight for justice and talk about justice. But I think too that we could do a lot more to really translate some of these really complicated health issues to be able to communicate them out more broadly. No, I love that you brought that topic up, Felicia, because I feel like how we communicate what's going on, how we're communicating the data is so valuable. And unfortunately, not enough researchers know how to do that properly. And, and there's sometimes there's a miscommunication between what a paper presents and what the media presents. And, like, and, and trying to find and match up that disconnect. I mean, I, for myself, I believe that we need more people who study these things in these other areas so that things are being translated the best way they possibly can. But from the point of a graduate student, maybe that means we should be taking more courses or actually learning and having webinars and workshops of how to communicate our ideas in a way that are understandable for the general public. I mean, we like to use a lot of jargon, but that doesn't that doesn't help the problem with you know black maternal mortality, right? Like that's, that doesn't like you just you just say it, but if you actually give statistics, if you talk about the stories of people, like that, a lot of times will connect a lot more to general public. They're hearing the names and not just the numbers. On the concept of speaking up or being suffocated by silence, 
I can breathe has been used as a metaphor to identify the struggles that's associated with being a black person in America. What are your opinions on this? Do you think you have the right to have an opinion? Being in public health at the university, do you ever feel like your voice is drowned out? Okay, I'm going to speak on that discussion with, you know, the phrase I can breathe, use, uh, using that as a, uh, an analogy for, you know, the experience of black people in the United States. And there's so much, like, just in that, in that statement, so much that goes into it. I've been, you know, been reading a lot, exposing myself to different things just in this past few weeks because of, you know, the most recent incident in the United States. And, you know, hearing the voices and stories of just different people in different sectors from corporate America, even within academia. Currently, right now on Twitter, there's a, a phrase, there's this hashtag that's, you know, going around Twitter called Black in the Ivory. And basically, Black people in academia talking about the experiences in academia. And even the silencing of Black voices within academia is quite surprising because you think, oh, we all know what we're, you know, we all know we're all very knowledgeable about racism and about, you know, just the impact it has. And you think that, you would think that academia should be a safe space. But from the, you know, from what I'm finding and hearing people talk, I'm realizing that this is not the case. And the, the numbers are really low. When you look at the numbers for women in academia or even just black people in academia generally, you know, you see people like, you see people, you see that first of all, there are not enough PhDs, not enough doctorate, you know, what I, should I say medical, in the medical field, in the um, academic, you know, all kinds of fields, doctoral, just like the terminal level of people's career. They're not enough. Uh, voices are being silenced in this case. And you also hear stories of women working so hard within their department to make it to tenureship, you know, but they're not even given that chance to, you know. And so, yes, students trying so hard within the day, we can't breathe in that regard, you know, voices of people in corporate America working hard but not getting the recognition they deserve. Yeah. We can't breathe. And you know what? We can't breathe because we, we can't express this with fragility, you know. Mm. White fragility meaning that, you know, we don't want to offend white people when we talk about this. We don't want to sound like a broken record. We don't want to be the voice in the background like Chelsea alluded to at the beginning of this podcast because we've talked about this for years but no one is listening. But we have to talk about it because without talking about it, we can't get past it, you know. And so when we talk about it, we are, we're scared of retaliation. We're scared that we're going to get fired. We're scared that our paper wouldn't get published. We're scared that we're going to lose our position within a certain, you know, space. And so, yes, we cannot breathe and we want to breathe. It's time, I feel like, black people should be given that space to breathe in this country in every aspect. Yes, I love it. I love it. That's actually really what I was trying to get to with that question because I've been having conversations with people too or just listening to other people and I've been hearing this whole thing about, well, you know, I know this is it. this is horrible. This is happening, but I can't speak about it because when I do, I might lose my job. How am I going to feed? Or even me, like I really use my own platform, like my Instagram and I'm talking and I'm like, pushing people to the limit. I'm like, no, this is, this is bad. We need to actually talk about this or like, you know, maybe I'll go somewhere and just type something and see what people, whether they are going to interact or not, things like that. And the thing that goes on to my mind is, oh my God, you know, I'm st I still want to be in academia. What if they use this, they hold this against my neck and be like, well, you're perpetrating, you know, they just look for something and say, I'm trying to perpetrate hate speech or I'm doing this and I'm doing that and be like, oh, we don't want someone like you. And I'm just trying to like live with that possible reality that someone might not want me because of I'm speaking my own truth. And that's fine. Hmm. Yeah. That's a real fear. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I was like, you know what? Mm -hmm. I want to teach them that you need to stand up for yourself. If people will not give you the space that you earn, you collect it. You go and you demand it and you take it. And if they're still like, no, 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 don't go there. Don't let people degrade you. You walk out. There's something better. You will find something. And that's the kind of like 
that's the kind of role model I want to be. So I'm like trying to like do that with my own life. I'm like, ah, it's hard when you have to push. And I'm just like, God, this is what kills. This is stress. <laughs> this is what kills people. Like we should not be fighting like this for common decency. Like if you still have to talk about basic things like race, um, gender and like gender-based violence or or being equal opportunity like basic things then imagine the billions of other things that we have like problems in this world but we're still just trying to figure out that basic thing that everyone should be on the same page like yes it's the normal common sense but yeah so what do you guys do you guys have <laughs> before we go off <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I have a question. As far as it comes to being like Black women in academia and mm -hmm. wanting to be able to talk about, to talk about these things, you know, and to be able to breathe and to be honest, mm -hmm. but come knowing that those things can often come with the fear of Will this affect my thing like my work getting published will this affect like future job references because i was perceived as being xyz because of other people's implicit bias it has nothing to do with me you know what does it look like for us as black women who need and feel that personal drive to speak out about these things because unless we do things will stay the status quo while also recognizing that the people who are in control <laughs> um, and who really hold our futures, if we do, that could even impact the future of people looking like us even being in our places. I think I got what, you, what you're trying to ask, like, what are the effects, like, going beyond us, but like for future individuals or for future prospects who identify like as black women coming to the same field so like we're not just affecting our future but yes if we speak up is that what's your question yeah i guess yeah that is my question i guess my question is if we my question is if we speak up mm -hmm. and we face the wrath then then we're in trouble mm -hmm. if we don't speak up and things remain the same we can't breathe if we, you know, and so it feels, I guess I would just, my question is really talking about like how, at least my question is maybe just more of a statement in the sense of it feels like oftentimes we're being put in this like hard place of not, of not being able to can maintain the status quo because again, like the status quo is whether we can breathe or not. Um, and at the same time, like, yeah, like what does that mean? Like, how can I how can I breathe and get my PhD completed? And I think that like, even the fact that that's a question that I have to answer or for me in my master's program, like these are the things that I'm thinking through that I know that my peers aren't. Mm -hmm. So I guess, I don't know, I guess that's a question and a statement and just like something that I think that at least I have to wrestle with every day. How do I navigate this space and navigate around all of these, like what feel like secret landmines of fragility around me and still thrive and succeed and excel so that the next, you know, the next generation of a beautiful, strong, confident, amazing black women can enter into these spaces and be more free than even I feel right now. What does that look like? So those are About my landmines of fragility. I love it. <laughs> Like, right, you know, anyway, so that was my you know, statement. Yes. <laughs> I love that. I love that. You should get that copyrighted. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I feel like I've been having that conversation a lot with people lately um, about what, am I, I guess a lot of people are coming up to me and asking, what can I do? Mm -hmm. Or how can I, how can I do something within my capacity? And I honestly, I feel like I'm constantly saying, use do what you can in the season that you're in. Mm -hmm. Know your limits and also know what, you, what you're able to do and what is feasible in the season that you're in. Mm -hmm. I know my season as a graduate student that maybe they'll be in sometimes in rooms where maybe I'm the only black person. And in those, in those spaces, I've learned how to use my voice in the way that I feel most comfortable with, but I also know I can't sit silent. Mm -hmm. I think I a bit of my like, life trying to figure out 
and being quiet, trying to figure out how or if I should speak. And I've reached a point where I'm just going to speak. And, you know, what is it? What's the thing? It's like you ask, you, you do and ask forgiveness later, whatever that thing is. <laughs> There's like a phrase for it. I'm forgetting it right now. But I feel like I've reached a point where I try to assess what am I capable of doing now in my season with, with, what, with what resources I do have, knowing that when I get to a different place and a different season, that I can do bigger and greater things, right? But I mean, I'm having the conversations with the people that I, that I, that I'm having, I'm engaging in those conversations. These are, and things, these are things that we've been doing, especially as black women, for centuries, for generations, we've been having conversations, we've been doing these things, right? And it's, I know it feels like it's a broken record, constantly saying these same things, but I, I've, I've learned that I can't be quiet anymore. Mm-hmm. And like the strength and power in our voice as black women alone, there's strength and power in our voice. And it's important that we can, I say, talk the talk and speak eloquently and express how we're feeling in, in a way that can relate to people that maybe necessarily don't share our background and our history and our trauma and our struggle. Mm-hmm. And I, like, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's just like, it's just like ongoing, like it's ongoing battle, but it's, it's one that we engage with every day, whether we're stepping out on the ground and holding, you know, and holding protesting signs or whether we're stepping into the boardroom, we're the only person of color. Like it, our, our daily life is a protest. Mm-hmm. And like, like, it's important that we acknowledge that and that you're not, it's, it's not like you're not doing something. You being here, all of us being here in this space is doing something. But it's also knowing that we, ha- we hold a certain responsibility with the privilege that we have of being in this space to do something with that privilege. Can I add to that? Thank you, Chelsea, for saying doing what you can do mm-hmm. with what you have. Mm-hmm. I love it because the definition of success is not getting halfway and then getting you know being blocked because you said something or losing that job because you you know said something you need to know what your goal is and aim for your goal by any means necessary and then document document everything right keep track of because listen you can you know you can write your book and your story will be heard but maybe during that time you couldn't speak out because you knew the consequences of speaking out will be getting kicked out to your destination. Maybe you have a better platform and you can share your story. Yes. Thank you, Tolu, for adding that on too. Yes, definitely. I too have had a lot of conversations with people and sometimes like because I've had even with like our own government in Nigeria and everyone is like, oh, what can I do? You know, one day I'll be in that position where I can actually make an impact. And I'm like, yes, definitely you can. And I hope you're there. <laughs> I hope you're there one day. But like right now, what, what can you do right now? And what are you doing right now? If you feel like you can't do anything right now, why do you think when you get there, you'd know better or you'd be better able to navigate or be able to like, you know, connect to whatever. Because like, let's not forget we're growing. Right now, like me, I am in my early 20s. By the time I'm in my what, maybe even late 20s or mid 30s, I'm going to forget what I went through right now or probably how I thought. And it's very easy to lose touch of who you were and like not even being able to empathize with people in that generation or like, you know, so when you now get into that place of power that you were once like, you know, dreaming of being, then you forget what you felt like when you were not and then lose touch of that and maybe even start to exercise your power in a way of, well, now you're, well, now you're now the oppressed is now the oppressor. So that kind of thing. Like you now become the one who is now oppressing people. Now we're in this cycle of like, no, maybe I should just wait it out when I get there. But now your mentality has changed. You never like cultivated or like, you know, I don't know. I feel like I'm making sense. <laughs> but yeah, this is like, you know, the little things I'm like, we just have to like make sure that like, you know, you just keep on walking towards it keeping in mind, I mean, letting yourself grow, evolve, keep on going in that path where you're aware. If I go here, I know what I want to accomplish. I know where I was. And well, I mean, yeah, things like that. Well, do you guys have any? Yeah, definitely agree. It is. It's being faithful with the little you have. So when you are entrusted with more, you know how to handle it. Yes. Like don't, it's, it's, it's a, it's a farce to think that, you know, <laughs> that you can not do anything and not learn the tools and gain the, gain the, gain the, the resources and the tools and the understanding and then be able to apply it to a bigger problem. That doesn't exist. Like 
if you have a small, deal with a small thing. If it's talking to your neighbor and getting that, you know, your racist neighbor and getting to have a conversation with you, then that is your small thing. And then maybe 10 years from now, it'll be you talking to a giant boardroom of CEOs and you're only person of color CEO in the room, right? And so it's, you've gained those tools along the way. Like we can't, I feel like often we're told in academia and other areas to negate our experiences as if they aren't enough. And that's just a lie. Our experiences are more than enough. All right. Okay. So thank you guys. On to the next question um, for the segment. So what do you hope to see in the future? What Basically, what do you intend to use a degree for and why public health? But as you guys are thinking, I'm just going to start. <laughs> so I basically entered public health at first. I had no interest in public health. I thought public health was just about microorganisms. And I honestly, my interest actually sparked when I took microbiology. And I was like, oh, I actually never thought about bacteria that way. Maybe I should do, I should take public health then and just learn more. <laughs> so I came into public health thinking I was going to learn about bacteria and diseases. But I stayed in public health because I got way much more. I started learning about these frameworks, social determinants of health, how to actually look at things deeper than it already is. And I just really got interested, like, wow, this is actually where I want to go in my life. So like being public health, hopefully being a medical practitioner is some other way because I'm very like active. Like, I mean, public health is active, but you know, I don't like looking for people to help me do something. I'm more or less like I want to be the I want to be the one who gets to like actively do this thing. So it's kind of like a how can I understand my community? Everything I do right now is for my home. I have plans of going back home. I mean, hoping I can go back home at some point, go back home and use the resources that I have learned for something that is way bigger than me. And even if I don't get to accomplish what I'm dreaming of when I'm alive, as long as I can start something and it continues even long after I'm gone and we're having that the impact, the intended impact, even if we have a little bit unintended consequences, such as life. But I really want to see my own home go further, go forward from where it is. And I think public health is giving me the knowledge, the insight. But then again, everything does boil down to like policies and laws and, you know, the big circle in all our models of <laughs> the biggest circle. Oh, yeah. Um, so for me, I intend on working in the community in some capacity, somewhere, somehow. Um, I enrolled in the community and behavioral health department because I truly see community as the antithesis of oppressive systems. If we can take care of each other and create resources and really be focused on our community, that's when we can kind of subvert and circumvent some of these systems that really do the most harm. Um, so <laughs> this question is always hard for me because I can't be like, I have a job title or like, I know where I want to be, but I, I know what type of organization I want to be a part of and I know what type of work I want to do. And that's really getting power into communities, um, specifically black communities, um, but really thinking about all the skills that I've been gaining in the Masters of Public Health program to think about issues at the top level, um, thinking upstream, thinking about prevention, but then bringing that back down to action and what that might look like. Um, I know personally, too, that if I'm not involved in some sort of, like, direct action, I'm going to feel defeated, like I'm not working for the cause. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, too, what public health provides is an opportunity to do some more intellectual work that maybe takes a little time before we see action, but also thinking about what can I do every day that helps my community um, I, okay, mentioned um, we're both TAs together for the fundamental public health class. Mm -hmm. I personally found teaching to be an excellent combination of like the intellectual work I want to do and then that direct service of like hopefully imparting that knowledge on a group of students. Um, so thinking a lot about balancing these really um, more ac ac intellectual activities with, you know, how am I in my community making ties, making sure that everyone is um, feeling safe and has the best opportunity to be healthy. Three things, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. They were 
highlighted in the Declaration of Independence for the United States of America, right? That citizens of this country should have those, those are their unalienable rights, right? So I'm saying that not everybody has those three things. Not everybody has life, right? People's lives have been taken away from them, whether directly or indirectly through structural racism and, you know, the factors that exist around us that not allowing people to have the ultimate health outcome that they can possibly achieve. Happiness. People are not happy with the situation right now. The pursuit of, you know, like these are the things that we want. And honestly, I want to see a future where my, it might not happen in my generation, but my children have access to these things that they know that they can achieve whatever they want to achieve without of limitations, things that exist within your community, holding them back, you know, without we, uh, so all the things we talked about today very very pertinent very important like we cannot ignore these things I know we had the lightest of lightest conversation just a nice surface kind of brushing the surface of things but there are a lot of things that exist that we've not talked about today and I'm sure that we are all very much aware of and you know people should not be told that they can achieve what they want to achieve because of the color able or they identify as you know whatever gender things that we have going on we talk about i feel like we enjoy talking about that we just like to have a topic to talk about but actually doing something and taking the stance and saying no 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 we're going to move this forward that's is enough of the talking honestly we don't even you know all right thank you for that even if we did have like Glitches. I think we could make out what you were trying to say, and that was a really like powerful, like right on the neck. Like, and this is how we normalize things by brushing things over and doing like, oh yeah, I know we all express this, but no one wants to talk about it. So let's just keep on moving, and yeah, to the point where everyone explodes, and then you are deemed the perpetrator, the violent one, for saying, I cannot take this anymore in that life but we're going to change that soon all right so does anyone else have anything to say for that question so we usually ask everyone who comes on our pod these two questions it's just a really like you know kind of to take the edge off i guess from any interview we have um and the first one is what's something outside the field of public health that you're really interested in for me i think I'm really interested in psychology, um, but specifically just with my background, I think I'm interested in psychology and mental health and how that, um, yeah, it, it, it is super, um, super interconnected with public health, um, but also even specifically how the field of psychology um, interacts with culture and how different like different cultures value and have completely different outlooks on, um, yeah, on different things. And so, I don't know, I feel like I really love uh, learning more about the interactions between people and the study of people. However, I'm also particularly interested in how culture intersects with those things. Um, I am really interested in, so I guess when you were, I've, I wanted to think of something super academic and then I was just like oh dancing and reading but honestly those are the two things that I'm very interested in but I think I really appreciate dance because it literally is kind of what B. Keller was saying it's a it's a cultural fusion but it brings people from so many different areas like it's it's a language that's spoken without words yeah. and I love, I love dance and I love how people can express themselves and express you know, whether it's interpretive dance, whether it's West African or Latin dancing or whatever. I mean, there's so many varieties and I think there's so much beauty and that's a great way for us to connect across cultures and to share and embrace the beauty that we all have um, with our, like, with our heritage with dance. I've been more interested in history lately, which I'd never thought I'd say because it was like always my least favorite class, um, which speaks more to the type of education I got and less on the subject. But um, thinking more about how much we can really learn from incidents in the past and how much history really does repeat us and from a cultural and you know thinking about the diaspora and what all we could really gain from learning more about our own history and how that affects our own identities and how we move throughout the world is incredibly valuable. Oh yeah, um, I'm interested in a lot of different things, but something I'm looking into now is just reading a lot more and educating myself about 
past events and how they are influencing occurrences today and how they could influence the future. So I, I'm trying to read a lot more. And if you have any ideas of good books that I can read, I'm always happy to, um, you know, to get those ideas and keep mm-hmm. reading. But I, on the other hand, I'm interested in fashion and physics and genetics and music. <laughs> interested in everything. <laughs> but cannot focus on one thing. <laughs> you know, my head just keeps 1,000 miles. I'm just like everywhere at the same time. But yeah, okay. So the second question is, what is one thing you thought you knew but found out you were wrong about? I can go. Mm-hmm. I think for me, kind of just along the lines of like this conversational topic, specifically talking about race, I think that even for me, like as someone who does identify as a Black woman, my understanding of what it means to be Black has completely turned on its head over the past five to seven, I guess really about the time I started college. Um, So seven plus years now, like in the past decade, I would say my understanding of my racial and ethnic, but specifically my racial identity has completely changed as, as yeah, as we've learned more about history and like the history that I had no idea about my own history, like, you know, and the history of those um, who've come before me. So I think for me, yeah, maybe this is, Maybe if, it, if we were in a completely different context, I'd say something completely different. But I think, like, truly my understanding um, of the world in which we live and what it means for people, people like me have, it's completely and totally dramatically changed over the past decade of my life. Okay, I guess I'll go next. Um, I guess for me, one of the things growing up, I thought life was going to be easy. I thought that life was fair. You know, I thought if you work hard enough, you would get what you want. You know, I thought life was, but now I'm, you know, growing up and I'm beginning to realize that life is not linear. There are different paths and, you know, life is not fair and don't expect fairness in life. So, you no, know, adaptability. I guess that first word that you chose is something that is so pertinent because you have to adapt to every situation. Have to keep giving it your 100% and that's it. I feel like I would have to say that my education protects me. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I I used to put a lot of weight on on the credentials and the, the letters after people's name and seeing people in those like authority places and like really thinking um that that like realizing like it's like it's like you know when someone that you admire kind of lets you down right it realizes that one that we're human but like two I realize that my intersection my intersection of identities of being a black woman in education like that doesn't that doesn't protect me my higher degree doesn't protect me from people doing acts toward me my and we have we seen, I feel like in the, in the news and across media, like your wealth, your XYZ does not protect you from bias um, and whether whatever kind of bias you're experiencing, it's, I'm, I'm realizing that it's, it's being shown more and more and more. While I don't discount my education because I realize it informs me and it does empower me in a different way, but I realize it does protect me. I think for me, and Hopefully this resonates with just about anyone who goes to college, but I've been spending a lot of time unlearning a lot of things, just how I think we've all kind of touched on things that we thought were true about the world. And now as we get deeper into our education and really see some of the happenings and seeing how systems actually work to kind of, as Tawani said, you know, life's not fair and seeing how that kind of plays out in our society. And I think what I've really been embracing lately is the idea that not the idea that but really reconciling with the fact that research is an objective and learning how to interpret research and you know really understand that it's not inherently objective and that we really need a critical lens to be able to understand that and again how do we distill all that information and make it accessible um, is something I'm trying to practice more and more. Thank you guys. Thank you so much. And this is also a way to try to like ignore my own answer to that question. But 
Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you so much for coming onto the pod today. Everything just kind of. It's been, well, this is, has been a very, very lovely conversation, honestly. I think we all had fun, right? Or was I just, yes, everyone is not in agreement. Yes, we had fun. Yeah, we had fun. Yes, so thank you so much. So that's the end of the podcast for today. Thank you again to our guests for taking the time uh, just to come and talk to us on the pod this week. Now we're going to have a couple things. So, okay, what do you think? (laughs) So (laughs) I'm actually really grateful for this platform, for the podcast, for us to have the opportunity to actually come together and sit down and discuss issues like this or just discuss about anything you know it's something that i actually really have wanted to do like from all our podcast meetings i'm always like why don't we just reach out to other people and just you know ask questions and stuff so i think um everything that is going on right now as i said it was just a tad bit crazy you know just a little bit um it's really really like it was really awesome to just sit down and just you know talk what, what did you think? Yeah, I mean, I don't have a lot to say uh, other than I was just blown away by it. I learned a lot. And yeah, I, I got to listen to it quite a few times as I went through and edited and just got to hear it over and over and really, really sit down and think deeply on it. And I don't really have a lot to add. I thought it was, yeah, it was really, really eye-opening. So really good conversation. Mm-hmm. So um, what did you, what do you think about the um, hashtag shutdown academia, hashtag shutdown STEM? So, yeah. Okay. You bring up a good point. I think the idea that there's gatekeeping in academia, that there's gatekeeping in the STEM fields, I think, yeah. I mean, people talk about the leaky pipeline where a lot of people of color come into fields, but then they don't, they aren't able to continue to advance because they're passed over for promotions because of discrimination uh, or because of continued microaggressions. They, you know, they have issues at work because you know, not only are they trying to do their own work, they're trying to cope with all of the other things that, you know, our guests were talking about today. And I think that we need to be having conversations in our workplaces and academia is absolutely one of those workplaces in our schools. We need to be having these conversations. Yeah, I really do hope um, all these improvements, I guess, or all these conversations we have stays because I hope it's not just like, you know, a trend because I see like there's just a lot of things going on. Everyone just feels like they have to jump on this bandwagon or else I am this or I'm that. But it's also very easy to forget everything that we're trying to fight for now once everything like, you know, quote dies down and people will just go back to you know the usual ignorance and just oh that's just you know yeah that happened but let's continue moving the way that we always did and I just hope that's not the case I really do hope that we continue to talk about it learn how to be comfortable in uncomfortable situations I mean that's the only way that we can break all these barriers because if we act ignorant or continue to like normalize the situations then we're going to have kids and give them the same attributes and it's just going to be this whole constant loop and yeah yeah and i think one of the things that you know we're going to be hearing a lot about in the news in addition to these protests is going to be the resurgence of covid19 and i want to i want to just first talk about the fact that we are already seeing a resurgence in covid19 and I want to talk about incubation periods. So the average incubation period is two, is about five days, ranging from two to 14 days. And so when we're seeing these uptick in cases, this really is not due to the protests. In a week or two, we'll be able to say what the protests have done for COVID-19. But we have this major confounder of the fact that we opened up our country. So we're seeing that uptick. Hospitals are starting to fill right now. Uh, but that we can't say that's because of protests. And there's that major confounder of opening things up. So 
in again in a week or two we might ha- we're going to have better information but the cases just are still in incubation if they are rising from the protests so and if you are in, you know engaging in these protests remember you must please 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 practice social distancing as much as you can continue to wear masks um and sanitizers if you have to cough if you're sick don't go in the first place Send someone else in your place. Send someone else who isn't sick in your place and stuff. We're still in the middle of a pandemic, but we're definitely going to fight for our rights and the rights of our brothers and sisters. All right, so we're out of here. You can find us on Facebook at the University of Iowa College of Public Health. We're on iTunes and Spotify as well as the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Let us know what you thought about this episode and series at cph-grad-ambassador at uiowa.edu. That's cph-grad-ambassador at uiowa.edu. This episode of From the Front Row was hosted by Oge Chibo and Ian Bukta. It was edited by Ian Bukta. Oge Chibo wrote this episode, and Oge Chibo and Ian Bukta produced this episode. Thank you to our guests, Chelsea Hicks. Bikela Ikuba, Toluwani Adekunle, and Felicia Pieper for coming on the pod this week. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. See you next week. Happy social distancing. Stay safe and have that uncomfortable conversation. <laughs> <laughs>